0: Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Um, Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, thank you this morning for this letter that we're going to look at this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the treasures that are contained within this letter. And Lord, as we study it, we read it, Lord, would you cause us to... Love and treasure Christ more. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As I said there, we're going to our next book in the RBT series. is the book of Ephesians. It's probably, without doubt, my favourite book in the Bible. I think we're to have favourites. You know, John has brought all these wonderful books here. I'm sure when you go and look at them, Aside from his recommendations or Nathan's recommendations, you will probably turn to a page, in the, perhaps it's within the book, or it might be on the cover of the book, for endorsements. I wonder who endorses this book. And this morning, before we actually get into the book of Ephesians, this letter, I want to look at some of the endorsements. Some of the endorsements to this letter. To encourage us in reading and studying this Letter. A scholar by the name of Armitage Robinson calls it the crown and climax of Pauline theology. J. Sidlow Baxter, a theologian, he says this, Although not nearly the longest of Paul's epistles, Ephesians is generally conceded to be the profoundest. There is a grandeur of conception about it, a majesty and dignity, a richness and fullness which are peculiar to it. William Barclay, professor of divinity in Glasgow University, calls it the queen of the epistles. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a well-known composer, he says this, it's the divinest composition of man. Our friend Mark Debra says this, he's a pastor in America, in this letter we probably have more clarity on God's ultimate purpose for creation than any other book in the Bible. Brian Chapel, Bible teacher, Paul Penn's themes so grand that they can take your breath away. John Calvin says, so I'm in good company. He says it's his favorite letter. Well, he says it's his favorite letter. I think it's my favorite book. But... And then this is I love this from Dr. Martin lorne Jones. He says this: the Epistle to the Ephesians is the sublimest and most majestic expression of the gospel. The sublimest. And the most majestic expression of the gospel. So let's look into the book and see why these eminent scholars and theologians have said the things that they've said. Now most of Paul's, well all of Paul's letters are generally written to to churches concerning issues and challenges and doctrine concerns that he has within those churches. But the letter to the Ephesians was not written with that in purpose. In fact, many theologians think that this, this letter was like a circular letter that was sent to many, many churches. Some of the manuscripts don't actually have the word Ephesians in it. And in many ways, as I've considered this, this letter, giving this overview, which is, which is really challenging, to be honest, to do Ephesians in this time, it's is, 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 is so rich. But in many ways, this letter letter confronts the thinking that those outside of the church believe about Christianity. It confronts that thinking. How many people here, how many times have you perhaps done something wrong, used the wrong word, perhaps you used an expletive you regret in the place of work, you've done something you know wasn't kind of godly, and somebody turned around to you and said, hey, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a Christian. Christians don't do that. I remember sitting on a coach on my way to Heathrow. I was going to Uganda and the lady sitting next to me and she was, she was about 50, I guess. Uh, I hope I didn't insult her in that. But she's about 50, sitting next to me and she, she asked me why I was going to Uganda. I explained I was a pastor. And she immediately replied, well, I'm a Christian. And then she went on to say, I don't go to church, but I try to be good to others. That's what being a Christian is about. Then I had the challenge for the next hour and a half to try and help her out in that book. But, but these sort of comments reveal that for so many people, being a Christian is fundamentally about how you live your life. Well, in this book, that thinking is turned on its head. In this letter, Paul wants us to understand our worth in Christ, what God has done for us, and our walk with Christ, what we must do. Although being a Christian should affect how we live, it's not the place we start. So often we start there, and people think we should start there. But it comes as a result, first of all, of what God has done. That's the place Paul starts. In fact, you'll see that in his other letters. You'll see that in Colossians. You'll see that elsewhere. That's not where he he starts, and it's not where God wants us to start. So this morning we're going to look at, uh, two, these two overarching themes of our wealth in Christ, i.e. what God has done for us, and which is contained in chapters 1 to 3. And then secondly, our walk with Christ, what we must do, which is in chapters 4 to 6. Our wealth in Christ, what God has done. I read this in commentary of Warren Wisby on Ephesians, and he tells of a, a woman called Hetty Green who was regarded as America's greatest miser. She died in 1916 and she left over $100 million. She would eat cold oatmeal. She wanted to save on the expense of heating. Her son suffered a leg amputation when he got a, a problem in his leg because she delayed too long to find a free clinic. She didn't want to pay for any work done on him. She was wealthy. And yet she lived like a pauper. She was so foolish, they say, that she hastened her own death by bringing on an attack of apoplexy while arguing about the value of drinking skimmed milk. This was this 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 attitude that affected her. Wisby says Hetty Green is an illustration of too many believers today. They have limitless wealth at their disposal, and yet they live like paupers. It was to this kind of Christian that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. As I said, in the first three chapters, Paul is telling us about our spiritual blessings in Christ. If you turn to chapter one, turn to chapter one of Ephesians. After his greeting, Paul says this incredible statement. Sometimes I think we can gloss over this statement Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? He has blessed us. He has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing, every, every spiritual blessing. This could be considered as possibly the most profound sentence in all of Scripture that relates to us, relates to. You and I as believers. And Paul uses the expression in Christ throughout this book 27 times because he's wanted to describe the spiritual position of the believer. That we are identified with Christ. That we are in Christ. And therefore able to draw on the wealth of Christ for our daily living. The whole of our salvation can be summed up with this reality of our union with Christ, If you've never studied it, I encourage you, encourage you to look through it. If you've got a, a computer where you can key in looking for certain words, look at it in Christ. Look at it in Christ. It's an incredible study and it will bless your soul. The union with Christ is not a, single, it's not a single blessing we receive in our salvation. It's the best phrase to describe all the blessings of salvation. Listen to what Paul goes on to say about these spiritual blessings. He said, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were chosen before God even created this world. Think about that. God chose you. God chose you before the foundation of this world. We have been adopted in Christ. We're adopted. We're in the family of God. We're not workers of God. We're in the family of God. We're in Christ. We have all that Christ is. We have been redeemed and received forgiveness of sins. We've been reconciled to God. Redeemed. We've been bought with a price and the forgiveness of sins. There's no more sins to forgive, although we acknowledge we still sin. And we need to acknowledge that to God in repentance. But we've received forgiveness in Christ. And we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. And finally, he says here, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. What incredible truths those are. What incre- I mean, if we had time, we could, we could discuss each one of those statements. We could spend time, we could spend hours just looking at each one of those spiritual blessings. But Paul goes on to say, having declared these incredible truths, he prays, he's saying these are what the truths are, but now he's saying, I want to pray that you would know, you would know the wealth that is ours in Christ. So what does he pray for? He prays that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. prays that we would... We would know we would we not not just general wisdom, but wisdom about God, wisdom about his word, revelation of the Word of God, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, eyes of our hearts our emotions it wouldn't just be a head knowledge but it would affect our very being that we would know the hope to which he's called us we would we would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he would praise that we would know the greatness of God's power towards us. That's what Paul prays for. Having outlined what the spiritual blessings are, he said, I pray that you would know these things. You would, they, would, they would be deep within your lives. Then Paul in chapter 2 takes time to contrast this spiritual condition, our spiritual condition before salvation, with our spiritual condition now for those of us who are in Christ. And so he reminds us that once we were dead in our trespasses and sin, subject to Satan, subject to fleshly passions, and being under divine condemnation. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, But God being rich in mercy and because of his great love to us. And then he goes through and contrasts these things that he's already said, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, subject to Satan, subject to fleshly passions and under divine condemnation. He says, now, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. We can't can't make yourself alive. You're dead. You're dead. But he made us alive with Christ. He has saved us by grace. He has seated us in the heavenly realms. We have become the riches of his grace, being recipients of his kindness. And he emphasizes this grace. It's, already, it's explicit in the fact that he made us alive with Christ. But he says his grace is a gift of God. But he wants us to be sure there's nothing that we've done to earn or deserve this. It's not a result of works. Why, he says? So no one could boast. We can't boast in our salvation. Seeing these glorious truths should, should humble, ourselves, humble ourselves before a our holy God. And in the light of what God has done, Paul goes on to explain the difference that these glorious truths make in our lives. And he does this by, again, he uses this contrast, our previous relationship to Christ to our new relationship in Christ. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, We were without Christ, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, Without hope and without God in the world. Then he has this kind of another uh, go into another kind of but, but then in verse thirteen he he describes contrasting that where we were before Christ and new relationship in Christ. He says, We've been brought near to God. We have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. We have access to the Father. No longer aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God and being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What an incredible transformation. I said, I mean, it, 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 the time we've got and doing an overview is difficult because these are rich truths, rich truths. Each one of those things just we could, we could focus on and spend time looking at. But what an amazing transformation. That Paul is outlining us. In writing us being built together, Paul in chapter 3 unfolds the mystery, goes on to unfold the mystery of the gospel. That in Christ, what, what was the mystery of God? It wasn't that there was a gospel. That wasn't a mystery. But the mystery that he's unfolding here is that of the gospel that in Christ there is a unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews believed in not that Maybe the gospel as we understand it, but they believed that someone was going to come and rescue them. But the unfolding really here of this mystery that Paul was talking about is this unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. See, the gospel has made peace between Jew and Gentile. The barrier between the Jew and the Gentile that was there has now been broken down. It has been destroyed. Destroyed and in that he goes on to outline his calling to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the gentiles and that who all who are in Christ are members of the same body united in Christ and that through his body the church the manifold wisdom of god might be made known having unfolded this mystery he says now this is a calling it's a calling now that I have, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And then Paul goes on to his second prayer in this book. The first prayer, he was praying that we might know. This prayer, he goes on to, is to pray that we might be strengthened. We might be strengthened. Strengthened with power in our inner being. So that Christ might dwell in our hearts. That we may be rooted and grounded in love. And we would know the love of Christ. Being filled with all the fullness of God. Being filled with all the fullness of God. And then it's as if at the end of, end of chapter 3... It's kind of almost like he's, he's, he's become overwhelmed himself. He's kind of like, wow, 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 I've been writing these truths. I've been penning this letter. And he becomes overwhelmed that he, instead of putting a doxology, a, a praise at the end, he, he sticks it right in the middle of this book. He moves to, into a doxology, a hymn of praise, before going on to chapter 4. As we go on to chapter 4 and look through chapter 4 to 6, these chapters deal with our second thing that we want to look at this morning, our walk with Christ. First was our wealth in Christ, what Christ has done for us. Now our walk with Christ, what we must do. Paul, having spent time addressing, and actually we haven't got time to go into this, but look at some of the words that he, he uses. He you know he uses lavish Richly, I mean, that, that, that it doesn't just kind of use just terms, he wants us to really fully understand. But having addressed addressing what depths of wealth we have in Christ, he now transitions into our response to what God has done. He's gone to great lengths to outline what God has done, and he doesn't want us to rush into how we are to live without grasping the wealth we have in Christ. So often we, we want to get into how do, how, would, how do we do it? How do we live this life? But Paul's saying, get hold of this first. Get hold of this wealth that you have in Christ. What Christ has done for you. I kind of feel, he'd like to say, if he was here this morning and he's just read the first three chapters. Just use your imagination a bit here. But he's read the first three chapters and he then says, now stop. Have you got it? Have you got it? I'm not going to go on until you got it. He wants us to be sure before we talk about how we live, that our lives are motivated by grace. This is an incredible letter of grace. Grace goes all the way through it. He wants us to be motivated by grace. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. I love this. The great gospel imperatives to holiness are rooted in indicatives of grace that are able to sustain the weight of those imperatives. The apostles do not make the mistake that's often made in Christianity. For the apostles, the indicatives, who Christ is and what he has done, are far more powerful than the imperatives. In other words, what we are to do. So often in our preaching, the indicatives are not strong enough, nor great enough, holy enough, gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives. <coughs> you get that? It's getting hold of the indicative, what God has done, what we've been made in Christ, to get that to a place where that's strong enough for us to be able to lead into how we need to live our lives. And Paul starts the second part in chapter 4 with, I therefore, in other words, in view of all that has gone before, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner of the calling to which you've been called. I just... Briefly here, we need to be careful here. Paul is not saying we're worthy. He is not saying we're worthy to be called, but in the light of God's mercy and grace towards us, which is a high calling, that we walk in a way, a lifestyle, lifestyle, that reflects that high calling in Christ. We've not, we're not worthy. Don't look at that and think. Walk in a manner worthy. We're not worthy, but he wants us to live in a way that's worthy of that calling. Live in that way. And Paul then begins to explain the implications of, of how we should live as Christians. And he does so in really in three areas, corporately, individually, and, and to degree into the world. And corporately encourages us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Again, we need to be careful. We do not create unity. The unity of the Spirit is something created by God. It's for all those in Christ. Our calling is to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It is created by the Spirit, but our calling is to maintain it. And he briefly goes on to say how we can do that. By bearing with one another in love. By walking humbly with one another. Being gentle and patient. Some ways that he's saying that we can, we can maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. And to help us to grow in that, Paul, Paul really goes through the whole thing, trying to help us in our lives so, that in, in, in doing this, he talks about the gifts that Christ, the ascended Christ, has given to the church to enable us to, to grow in these areas, to enable us to fulfill this, this walk with Christ. He says here that Christ has given ministry gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, to equip the church, build up the body of Christ, to build together the body of Christ, and to build out and grow the body of Christ for most of my Christian life, that has been three, three emphases I 've had build up, build up, to, build together and build out. that's where uh, what Paul is saying here, that's where I got it from, It's not for me. In verse 17, Paul addresses then our walk individually, that was corporately. He encourages us to. Put off the the old self and to have our minds renewed. And he gives us practical help by helping us to see it's not just a matter of putting off, but of putting on. Best way of putting off and dealing with things is to put on. You know, to deal with pride, one of the best ways of dealing with pride is to start being humble. Sitting there thinking, I'm not going to be proud anymore. I'm not going to be. It's tough. Be humble. Do things. We'll put on. And he gives us an example here in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Put off. But only as such for building up. Put on. Now, there are others, other examples here, but we haven't got time this morning. And then he continues this theme in chapter 5 and deals with how We should walk in a manner worthy outside of the church. Again, let's just take one verse, example, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Be careful what we get ourselves involved with, with regard to the world. This living in a manner worthy of the calling is challenged never more than in our marriages, in our homes, and our places of work. And so Paul deals primarily in chapter 5 and 6 with our heart attitudes that play out in these close and intimate relationships. Telling wives and husbands how to behave towards one another. He introduces the doctrine of the nature of the church and the relationship of the church to Christ. Wow. (laughs) Love to get into that. (laughs) We have time this morning. You'll notice when you read this part of the letter, when he addresses uh, wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters, he addresses the wife first, the children, and the servants. You'll probably think it should be the other way around. You know, you dress, dress the parents before you dress the children. Why does he do this? Well, Paul is concerned about a particular issue here. Having said in verse 5, verse 21, all of us are to submit to one another out of reference for Christ. He clarifies that all of us should have submissive, loving attitudes, humble attitudes to one another, but there is still an order in these places. The when fulfilled brings glory to God. And so he deals with that first. He deals with that. that he wants to, before, before husbands kind of take authority over them, he wants the wives to submit. He wants the children to obey. He wants the, the, the slaves to be good. Slaves. He's saying there's an order, even though there should be a submission to one another. And Paul, being aware of the battles that sin with sin that we will face in walking worthy, Gives us insight into the weapons and armor we need to fight the enemy. He said it's not flesh and blood that has a primary enemy, it's Satan. And it's through his lies and deceit that he will do all that he can to draw us away from living a life worthy of the calling. Brian Chappell speaking of the armor of God that Paul is about to go into talk about, he said, We're assured of the power of the resurrected Christ for the defeat of Satan. So let's ask a question, just in closing. Why has God done all this? Why has he done it? Well, Ephesians gives us the answer. Just want to break it into three quick points here. First of all, for the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 6, we see this expression. The purpose of our salvation, to be predestined for adoption as the sons of God, is answered, why? That purpose, in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, the whole purpose and object of salvation, in the first instance, is for God to manifest the truth concerning himself. That's the first intent. God is vindicating and declaring and showing the truth about himself. Salvation vindicates the greatness and character of God in a special way and in a manner nothing else does. Look at this when you study it. Look into this aspect. Secondly, so for the praise of his glorious grace, for showing his grace. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, uh, this is an incredible statement to me. So that in the coming age, ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I've used want to use the doctor to help us in this text. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, speaking of this text, this is to me the most overwhelming thought that we can ever lay hold of, that the Almighty... Everlasting God, the everlasting eternal God, is vindicating himself and his holy nature and being by something that he does in us and with us and through us. Incredible. God's way of vindicating himself because of man's sin and because of Satan's destruction. He's got something he does in us, and with us, and through us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. doctor goes on to say this, Who am I and what am I, that God should ever looked upon me and chosen me to, to be a part of his plan and purpose, to vindicate himself, his greatness, his glory, his wisdom, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his compassion, before the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. One of my favourite... Uh, Authors is John Newton. He writes this. For if we were not vile and worthless beyond expression, the exceeding riches of his grace would not have been so gloriously displayed. His glory shines more in redeeming one sinner than in preserving a thousand angels. Paul says, and he's speaking about this text. Paul says, God has done all this so that he may present a spectacle to all future ages, not only in this world, but also that which is to come. But you think, wrapped up in our salvation for us, but you know what? There's something bigger than us. It's much bigger than just us. It's for the praise of his glorious grace. It's for him to be able to reflect his grace. Isn't it amazing that God so graciously granted us salvation so that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Paul here wanted his hearers to realize the glory that awaits us and allow that to change our view of our lives in this world. And then the third thing, for God's glory, the chief end, intent, and object of salvation. The chief end, intent, and object of salvation is the glory of God. We why we were saved, why adopted as children to God, to the praise of his glory and grace. This isn't ultimately about us. Paul wanted us to know this, but his glory. I want to close just with Paul's doxology at the end of chapter three. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him, to him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you this morning. Thank you this morning for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing grace that we have received. And Father, we're so grateful that you have chosen us to be part of your eternal purposes. Lord, would you, as we study this book, would you enlarge our understanding and deepen our love for you? Would we grow in our affections for you and live lives worthy of the calling? We ask this in the precious name of Jesus and for the glory of God. Amen.